Welcome to the Cutting the Gordian Knot podcast. Today is a Thanksgiving-themed episode, and by Thanksgiving, I mean the Greek word for Thanksgiving, Eucharisto, where we get the word Eucharist, which is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what this episode is about. It's about where we find the Eucharist primarily in Scripture, though we'll also be talking about the early church fathers, some Jewish tradition. There's a section on philosophy, and um, there's a lengthy Q&A section, which I think is lots of fun and should answer most of your questions. And of course, if you, you have questions over and above what we cover there, please email them into the site. I'd be happy to answer them on air. And if they're good ones and well-formulated, I will certainly add them to the end of the article. So you can help me build out some of the articles on the site. We'll be reading from um, Eucharist, a scriptural tour that'll be found on thegordianknot.org. Um, when you go there, you'll actually find in the comments section a fairly lengthy conversation. I think it's maybe 12, 13 replies back and forth with me and a fellow who engaged with the article, a guy named Tony, really nice guy. He actually teaches um, either philosophy or theology somewhere out in California. So he is a professor of some stripe. So I think it's a very good illuminating conversation. And actually additional arguments for the Eucharist came out of that conversation. So it really makes an an awesome additional text to this. Um, The reason I wrote this was, um, well, I was coming out of the Protestant faith, um, becoming Catholic. I I think at this point I had just been confirmed. And this is a lot of the stuff which made me understand our Eucharistic Lord. Um, And it's things which I I just really appreciated learning that I wish were explained to me. So it's in lieu of, well, The design is that you don't have to read a book on the Eucharist after this. I really wanted to pack as much or more information than you will find in a typical um, book covering the same topic. In fact, I even consulted a few books on the Eucharist, and I just flipped through the pages and tried to sum up, all right, did I hit every single article they hit, or every single argument they hit, and then I hit a ton more. So I like to think it's pretty action-packed. I hope you enjoy listening to this. And um, yeah, let's begin. We begin all the way back at the Garden of Eden. There's a little bit of setup, um, and I think you will enjoy. Let's jump right in. Let's see. Source and summit of the Christian faith. Center of Christian worship. Jesus Christ, body, blood, soul, and divinity. The doctrine of the Eucharist is foreign to most Protestant ears, an absolute madness to secular ones. However, it is insisted upon by Christ taught by the apostles, baked into the salvation story throughout the scriptures, and echoed by the church fathers with absolute unanimity. Salvation history, from the first few pages of Genesis, prefigures and foreshadows how our Eucharistic Lord will save his people. Don't believe me? Well, read on. The Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were created in union with God, and this union was not meant to be temporary, but everlasting. The proof was the tree of life, planted in the center of the garden. If they ate the fruit hanging from this tree, they would live forever and thereby extend their friendship with God and one another into eternity. This means that from the beginning, God's plan was to offer to mankind a meal, granting them eternal life with him. Unfortunately, our first parents chose to eat of another tree, which is called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. After they did so, they were thrown out of the garden. An angel with a flaming sword guards the way back to Eden in order to prevent them from eating of the tree of life and being trapped in this wretched state forever. 
Now, let's reflect on this by reading from Luke 23, to 46. In light of this brief summary above, 44. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. While the sun's light failed, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. It is almost as if the darkness at the crucifixion represents the sheathing of the angel's fiery sword. Before Christ's death, everything was seen in light of it. All of creation until this point was in the shadow of sin, cast in the light of our exile from Eden. Yet Luke tells us the veil was torn, the barrier between us and again walking in communion with our Creator as we did in Eden was removed through Christ's sacrifice. The tree which was taken away as a result of our sin, that was dragged up Mount Calvary and planted by Christ for all to see. And hanging from that tree is Christ's body, the same body that he tells us in John 6 is true food. In the Garden of Eden, mankind walked with God. Today, through Christ's sacrifice, that type of relationship is again possible. In the first garden, mankind was given the fruit of the tree of life to eat. Where is that fruit today? If the cross is the new tree of life, as even many Protestant scholars would affirm, how can we eat of the fruit? After all, what allows us to extend this relationship with God into eternity, but the fruit of the tree of life? The Eucharist makes sense of this in the words of Christ. Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. John six fifty three to 55 The new creation. Christ's resurrection marks the restarting of the creation story, which has, which has ended on the seventh day of Genesis. Matthew 28, 1-6 records, After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven, came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. For fear of him, the guards shook and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid. Know that you were looking for Jesus who was crucified, but he is not here, for he has been raised. As he said, come see the place where he lay. The story of creation is brought back on track by Christ on the morning of the eighth day. The terrifying angel that guarded against mankind's re-entering the garden now beckons them back, but into the place of the resurrection. Where is the place our first creation begins, which the angels invite us to see, or the place of the recreation, the new creation? Well, it's a garden. This is more explicit in John's narrative, where in verse 14, John 20, she turned to leave and saw somebody standing there. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her, who are you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you have taken him away, tell me where you have put him and I will go and get him. Mary, Jesus said. In a sense, she was correct. The original vocation of man has been returned to us. Our first parents handed dominion over the earth to the serpent, but Jesus took it back. The fruit of the tree of life is on the altar of churches around the globe. 
There is no place on earth we can't walk with God. The whole earth is now Eden. I'll interject a little bit of commentary. Just want to make sure that you see the parallel, if you didn't catch it. Um, his appearance was like lightning. You know, that, that seems to track with what we, we hear the description of this angel with this fiery sword, which is um, preventing us from going back into the Garden of Eden. Well, maybe that was the same angel that uh, now beckons um, beckons those women into the tomb to see the place of the new creation. Um, okay, let's move on to the next part. Um, this part isn't meant to be like a, a dunking on Protestants. Again, I was one for the vast majority of my life. Nor is it meant to just be a uh, needless attack, but um, it is meant to uh, tell Protestants, listen, you can't just continue in opposition to the church if it's true that Christ is present in the Eucharist, especially if it's then true that you require a valid priesthood in the line of the apostles to confect the Eucharist. If on one side of the equation you have Christ's literal presence with you and union with you, then on the other side you have any of your other concerns, your objections, your um, the other goods that come around from not being Catholic, whatever whatever those may be, if you outweigh Jesus with anything, well, you're in sin. So I want to kind of talk about the uh, spiritual dynamics which are involved in um, the Protestant rejection of the Eucharist. And without any further ado, you'll find the next section, Why the Protestants Lost the Eucharist. So why do Catholic churches have the Eucharist and Protestant churches do not? This may be hard to hear, but we can only eat the fruit from one tree. And Protestants choose the wrong one. Adam and Eve said no to the authority of God and instead imagined that they were the ultimate judges of what is good and evil, truth and falsehood, right and wrong. Christ started a church and gave it authority on earth. Paul refers to this church as the pillar and foundation of truth, 1 Timothy 3.15. Protestants, as the name implies, protest against this church. Catholics receive the fruit of the tree of life because we accept the authority of God on earth. Protestants make themselves the measure of truth and therefore deny it or denied it. Surely no Protestant would actually say that they make themselves the ultimate authority. No, they believe the greatest authority is God's word found in the scriptures. But listen again to the words recorded in our scriptures. Did God say you shall eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or you will die. But the serpent said to the woman, you're not going to die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you're going to be like God, knowing good from evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Moving on to a slightly uh, different passage, but later on in Genesis 3. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who, who you gave me, she ate of the tree, and then I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you've done? The woman said, The serpent tricked me, and I ate. These last words were no mere excuse. In fact, 1 Corinthians 11.3 affirms she was indeed tricked by the devil. So how did he do it? By taking the words of God and offering a different interpretation of them. 
Eve doesn't fall because she didn't know God's words, nor because she didn't believe them. In a sense, the first bite of fruit was when she decided in her heart that she was the one to determine what God's words meant on her own authority. When comparing Protestant and Catholic churches, you, like Eve, might think that you'll be better spiritually fed by the preaching or more engaging worship found at a Protestant service. Quote, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food. And let's face it, Protestant churches are cooler. They have better marketing and less reputation for scandal. And that it was a delight to the eyes. Plus, most Catholic priests can't preach their way out of a paper bag. And most Catholics don't know their Bible from a ham sandwich. Furthermore, a Catholic has to believe whatever doctrines the Catholic Church tells them. And, as a Protestant, you can learn and study for yourself, quote, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. The choice is the same today as it was in the garden. Either accept God's authority in faith, by obedience, and eat the fruit of the tree of eternal life, or make yourself the final interpreter of God's words and be denied it. Maybe you, like myself, were born into the Protestant faith, Does this give us an excuse? Well, let's consult scripture. The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit from the tree and I ate. Maybe you think because you didn't make the initial choice to leave Christ's church, um, but you still received the fruit and you still ate it. You still bear a certain amount of guilt. Next section. Don't be like Korah. Some Protestants might say their ultimate authority is not their own personal interpretation of God's word, like Eve thought, but rather it is the Holy Spirit. Practically speaking, this clearly isn't working, as can be seen by the multitude of ever-fractioning denominations. How can so many opposing denominations, churches, and movements be led by one Holy Spirit that only speaks truth? Salvation-level issues are, have rampant disagreement, even among those Protestants who put every effort to be faithful to the Holy Spirit's leading. Nowhere in the history of God's people was doctrinal authority vested in, quote, the people, writ large. Nowhere. And don't get me wrong, the idea did come up. Numbers 16, 2 through 3. And they confronted Moses. They assembled against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far. All of the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. So why do you exalt yourself? above the assembly of the Lord. Oh, and this is how that whole situation ended. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up, along with their households, everyone who belonged to Korah, and all their goods. So they, with all that belonged to them, went down alive into Sheol. The earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. All Israel around them fled at their outcry, for they said, The earth will swallow us too. And the fire came out from the Lord and consumed 250 offering the incense. So God was clearly not pleased with this idea. Now, three chapters later, Moses refers to the people as, quote, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, Numbers 19.6. So Korah wasn't wrong in saying that. In a sense, all of God's people are priests. He also wasn't wrong that God was truly with that people. Protestants aren't wrong to say that the Holy Spirit is with us, and we're all priests. Yes, that is true. What is desperately get sucked into the earth or consumed with fire levels of wrong is concluding that God did not establish an authority here on earth. Now, this isn't an article on church authority. That will be coming eventually. 
Here, we are making the point that whether your ultimate authority is your private interpretation of God's word spoken through the scripture, or if it is your private interpretation of God's word spoken through the Holy Spirit, in either case, you have become the ultimate arbiter of truth and therefore have plucked from the wrong tree. Undoing the Curse Plucking the fruit of the, long tree, of the wrong tree had devastating consequences for our first parents, taking them from the garden into a desert. After Adam's sin, God gives him a penance or a redemptive punishment. It's a recipe for redemption. Quote, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and you have eaten of the tree, about which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all of your days of your life. Thorns and thistles it will bring forth to you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. No man until Jesus could carry out this penance. It was his toil under the crown of thorns, humiliated and betrayed, that brought forth our food, it is by the sweat of his face, dripping blood at the Garden of Gethsemane and pouring sweat under the weight of the cross, that, quote, we shall eat bread. The labor of Christ's love undoes the curse of man's sin. Now, when I was a Protestant Christian, I, too, thought the scriptures were all I needed. In fact, studying them, quote, lit my heart on fire with the love of God. How could I have been missing something so monumental as the Eucharist? if it was really, true, truly littered throughout the Bible I studied? Well, Luke 24 tells us how. Quote, as they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead, as if he were going to go on. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, because it is nearly evening, and the day is nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he, Jesus, took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened. And they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Were our hearts not burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? And that same hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and their companions gathered together. And they were saying, The Lord is risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told us what had happened on the road, and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. They met Christ and invited him into their lives. They knew the scriptures. They had those scriptures explained to them by Jesus Christ himself. However, it took the Eucharistic meal, which Jesus first offered in the upper room, to open their eyes so that they could recognize him in the breaking of the bread. Jesus vanished afterwards because his human form was no longer necessary. He had given them himself. Next section, we examine Melchizedek one of the most mysterious and interesting figures in all of the Old Testament. Moving on to Genesis 14, we see recorded an unlikely group around the dinner table. In one seat is the king of Sodom. Also in attendance is the king of Salem, who is also the high priest named Melchizedek. Finally, we see Abraham, father of the Hebrew people. Today is a happy day for all of them, so they make a sacrificial meal in celebration. The Septuagint records the meal of bread and wine as a Eucharist, or Thanksgiving, meal. The three characters roughly represent God, Melchizedek, the devil, the king of Sodom, and mankind, Adam. To give some background to the celebratory meal, 
Abraham's nephew Lot had decided to go and live near Sodom at a particularly bad time. Some rival kings attacked the city and took Lot and his family captive. Abraham and 300 or so men made a plan for a rescue operation in the middle of the night. He splits the men into two groups and ambushes the camp from both flanks. Amazingly, outnumbered as he was, Adam, er, Abraham decimates the opposing army and rescues everybody. The king of Sodom is grateful for this, for what, Adam, er, for what Abraham did in rescuing his people, and wants to make a deal. He proposes Abraham keeps all the wealth while he takes all of the people. Basically, he asks Abraham to sell out the freedom and flourishing of others in return for wealth and comfort. Let me channel my inner ancient Middle Eastern uh, potentate for a moment and imagine what he may have sounded like, heaping up flattery. Abraham, that was incredible. Your, Your bravery saved my entire city. You deserve to enjoy the fruits of your own labor in thanksgiving for what you have accomplished. I'll take the people. You don't want them anyway. They're not like you, Abraham, brave and powerful. So don't worry about them. Go and enjoy the spoils of your victory. Now, Abraham had three choices. First, give in to the flattery. Make an alliance with the evil king and become wealthy and honored by him. Two, go back to normal life. Take what is fair for his trouble and continue as he always has. Or option three, out of thankfulness, look outside of himself and give away what he has to share his joy with God and others. Abraham credits God with his victory, not himself. He knew everything he has was given to him by God. This is why his act of thanksgiving and celebration doesn't turn inward into hoarding and indulging or selfishness and betrayal of others, nor does it embrace the second option and simply maintain the status quo. Instead, he accepts from the king of Sodom only what is necessary to provide for his men. Then he turns to the king of Salem and gives him a tenth of everything he has. The military victory was already won, but it was only at this Eucharistic meal of bread and wine with Melchizedek that Abraham completes his rescue mission of saving his family and the other captives from the rule of the evil king. Jesus is revealed in Hebrews 5.6 as a priest in the order of Melchizedek. He too lays out a Eucharistic meal of bread and wine. In this meal, we, like Abraham, complete the rescue mission and reject the evil king in favor of sharing in the joy of the Lord. Here's a short argument for the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Premise one, Christ is both the priest and the sacrifice. Premise two, Christ is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Premise three, Melchizedek's sacrifice was in the form of bread and wine. Conclusion, Christ's sacrifice of himself is in the form of bread and wine. Moving on to Joseph. Joseph saves his people with bread. Now, Joseph in the Old Testament might be the clearest picture of Christ in all of the Bible. Here is a far from exhaustive list of similarities. Jesus, 12 disciples, descends to earth and hell, the prison of souls. Oh, and hell, the prisons of souls. Betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, sits at the right hand of God, saves his people, provides Eucharistic bread for his people so they can live forever. Joseph, 12 brothers, descends into a pit, into prison. 
Betrayed for 20 pieces of silver. Sits at the right hand of the ruler and saves his people. Persifies bread for the people so that they can live. It's from Genesis 37, 5 through 6. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaths of grain in the field when suddenly my sheath rose up and stood upright while your sheaths gathered around mine and bowed down to it. Now, speaking of himself, Jesus says, Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Spoiler alert, Jesus died and rose from the dead. Or, if you will, suddenly his sheaf rose and stood upright, stood upright, resurrected. We, we as believers have been described as a field of wheat. So let's start to put these puzzle pieces together. Joseph is a type of Christ. His prophecy relates to himself proximately, but like many or possibly most prophecies, it has multiple fulfillments. Therefore, his dream relates to Jesus also. In his resurrection, Jesus rises up out of the ground. We, the other stalks of wheat, fall down in worship of him. Is this telling us that we are to be worshiping wheat? Of course not. Clearly in the dream, wheat is seen? But it actually relates to Joseph and later on to Jesus. But like in Joseph's dream, in the Eucharist, we see wheat well, made into bread. And we are to bow down to it precisely because it isn't wheat, but rather Jesus Christ. So let's move on to the fulfillment of this prophecy. Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find anyone else like this, one in whom is the Spirit of God? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as your command, to your command. Only with regard to the throne shall I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. So after enduring earthly betrayal, humiliation, and punishment, Joseph is found worthy of sitting at the right hand of the ruler. This, of course, parallels Jesus ascending to the throne of heaven, from whence the Eucharistic bread of heaven comes. Let's see how Joseph saves his people in contrast to Christ. Now there was no food in the land, for the famine was very severe. The land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. Joseph collected all of the money to be found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money from the land of Egypt and from the land of Canaan had been spent, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give me your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for their horses, the flocks, the herds, the donkeys. That year he supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock. When that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We cannot hide from my Lord that our money is all spent and the herds of cattle are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our lands. Shall we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us in our land in exchange for food. We, with our land, will become slaves to Pharaoh. Just give us seed so that we may not die and we may live, and that the land may not become desolate. Now, yes, that sounds brutal, 
Yet it is foreshadowing something beautiful. Listen to the word of the gospel. Then he began to speak and taught them, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure of heart, they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when you are reviled and persecuted, and under all kinds of evil, and, and are uttered against with all kinds of evil falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. And in the same way they persecuted the prophets before you, they will persecute you. Both the Egyptians and Joseph's own family ultimately came to Joseph with empty hands, asking for mercy, with nothing to offer but themselves. Now, both Jews and Gentiles in the New Testament are called to do the same. Listen to Christ's words in the Beatitudes. We are to be stripped away of wealth, power, pleasure, honor, in order to receive beatitudo, or the happiness that comes from entering into union with God. Why? Because the Christian faith is about Christ reproducing his life, death, and resurrection in each one of us. So the salvific analogy is clear. So where is this bread that is given from Christ's storehouse to save the world from certain death? A simpler question is this. What saves us from spiritual death? If you answered the gospel, you are almost right. If you answered Jesus, then congratulations, you are right. The gospel didn't die on the cross for our sins. Jesus did, and the gospel invites us to participate in his death so we can participate in his resurrection. Directly before the bread of life discourse in John 6 comes this passage in John 5, where Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees. Quote, you search the scriptures because you think that you have eternal life in them. And it is they that testify on my behalf, yet you refuse to come to me and have life. In light of Jesus's unequivocal declaration that his body is the bread come down from heaven, John 6. It is just as clear that Jesus' body, broken and given us to the Eucharist, is what saves us from the spiritual starvation. The scriptures don't save us, but they do point to the one whose incarnation does. The Passover. Oh, this is a big one, guys. Um, the Passover... Uh, parallels to Christ's sacrifices are enormous. No bone was to be broken. It was roasted, representing the descent to hell. The lamb had to be without blemish and male. Even the use of hyssop at the Passover and at the crucifixion pictures the cleansing power of his blood. The Egyptians viewed sheep as divine. Killing one was a capital offense in Egypt. Ironically, our lamb is divine, and though killing him was mankind's greatest offense, God uses it to spare us from death. Furthermore, it, it feeds on. Furthermore, it feeds us on our journey away from slavery and the dominion of the devil and towards the promised land. So first, the Hebrews had to find a spotless lamb, kill that lamb, spread its blood on their doorpost, and finally eat the lamb. Every one of those parts is essential. If they sacrifice something other than the spotless lamb, the angel of death killed their firstborn. If they didn't kill the lamb, death visited their home. If they didn't spread the blood over the door, death. And guess what? 
like pretty much every sacrifice in the entire Bible, it was not complete until they ate the sacrifice. What happens if they chose not to eat the lamb? Well, probably death. So let's quote Exodus 12, 7 through 10. They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the lamb that same night, and they shall eat it roasted over the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat have any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted over the fire with its head, legs, and inner organs. You shall, you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. So how can you fulfill the command, take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they eat, unless you eat the lamb? It is crystal clear the saving power of this sacrifice will not be in effect without the meal. 1 Corinthians 5.7 reads, Clean out the old yeast so that you may be a new batch, as you really are unleavened. For our paschal lamb, Christ, has been sacrificed. Clearly, Paul considers Christ as our new Passover lamb. John the Baptist took care of our first step. Find the lamb. Quote, Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John one twenty nine. Crucifixion is where the lamb was killed, but where is the meal? Celebrating the Passover is called eating the Passover. The meal was the whole point of killing the lamb. It was killed in order to be eaten. The angel of death only passes over homes that are marked with the blood of the houses in which they eat. Here is Luke's account of the Lord's Supper. When the hour came and he took his place at the table and the apostles with him, he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat of this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup, and after giving thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Then he took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he did the same with the cup after supper, saying, The cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Premise 1. The Passover lamb must be eaten, Exodus 12, uh, 7 through 10. Premise 2. Jesus is our Passover lamb, 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Conclusion. Jesus must be eaten, John 6, 30 through 59. You may be thinking that the consumption of Christ um, as the Passover lamb is spiritual and not fleshly. But here's the problem. Jesus came in the flesh, suffered in the flesh, died in the flesh, was resurrected in the flesh, and in order to give his flesh for the life of the world. 1 John 4.3 tells us, quote, And every spirit which does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God, and this is the spirit of the Antichrist. If you think the new Passover meal is spiritual and not incarnate, I ask you this, was the sacrifice of Christ on the cross spiritual or incarnate? If you say spiritual, then you are denying the second person of the Trinity came in the flesh to atone for our sins. That is the spirit of the Antichrist. But you probably said incarnate, and you are correct. How then can the new Passover meal be only spiritual when the new Passover lamb is incarnate? Here, you are not denying Christ come in the flesh at the cross, but rather at the Passover meal. Again, denying Jesus as God come in the flesh is the spirit of the Antichrist. Premise 1. Jesus came in the flesh as our new Passover lamb. 
Premise two, Jesus institutes a new Passover meal. Conclusion, Jesus institutes a new Passover meal where he comes in the flesh as our Passover lamb. And if you see the article, I quote multiple uh, scriptural passages for those. To reiterate, denying Jesus coming in the flesh is the spirit of the Antichrist. If we really want to cling to a symbolic reading of the Eucharistic meal instituted at the Last Supper, we have to show that somehow our Passover lamb ceased being incarnate. Now, by law, we must eat of the Passover lamb to participate in the Passover. If we claim that our meal is now only spiritual, or worse, symbolic, then we need to prove when and where the hypostatic union ended and Jesus, our Passover lamb, stopped being both God and man. Which, of course, one cannot do. Now, the charge of Antichrist has been lobbed at the Catholic Church since the beginning of the Protestant, of the Protestant Deformation. Martin Luther claimed uh, the Pope was the Antichrist in the bull against the Antichrist, um, among other places. John Calvin did the same thing in the necessity of reforming the Church. Today, plenty of churches hold the same view and accuse the church which has stood for 2,000 years of being the new Babylon and headed by the Antichrist. Even the mild-mannered Presbyterians who still profess the Westminster Confession of Faith state this as doctrine, quote, There is no other head of the church but the Lord Jesus Christ, nor can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof. But is that Antichrist, the man of sin, the son of perdition, that exalts himself in the church against the Christ and all that is called God? Now, Catholics ought to go on the offensive. The Protestant denominations, which have called the Catholic Church Antichrist for generations, are the ones denying Christ came in the flesh in his Passover sacrifice, as shown above. Their completely ahistorical, man-made, and symbolic reading of the Eucharist makes them guilty of one of the most damnable heresies possible. How much clearer could God make this in Scripture? Jesus, our Passover lamb, was born in a stable surrounded by livestock. Jesus, our bread of heaven, was born in Bethlehem, a town named House of Bread. Jesus, whose flesh is true food, was born in a manger. Another word for a feeding trough. Does it seem like God's trying to tell us something? Now, some have objected that Jesus could not have been giving his flesh at the Last Supper. After all, he didn't slice off a piece of himself. However, directly before the famous Bread of Life discourse in John 6, Jesus performed one of two multiplication miracles. So what exactly did he do? He took bread and flesh and gave it out without loss. In fact, in its division, it was multiplied. So yes, Jesus can give us the bread that is his flesh without loss. He is, after all, God, the one who made the universe out of nothing. Now, others have objected that the timeline doesn't work. You don't eat the flesh of the lamb before it's sacrificed. Therefore, Jesus could not have been giving us a piece of his sacrifice since he hadn't been sacrificed left it yet. However, we must remember who kills the lamb at the Passover. Originally, it was the father of the house. After the golden calf incident, post-Passover, the primogenitor priesthood was taken away and given to the Levitical priesthood. That's why, in Jesus' time, it was the priest who sacrificed the lamb. Who, then, was the priest that sacrificed Jesus? Well, Jesus was the high priest, not the Romans, not the Jews. When did he give up his body as a sacrifice? Well, at the Last Supper which was the beginning of his sacrifice. Furthermore, Jesus doesn't seem to have a problem with this timeline at all. In fact, he says, this is my body that will be given up for you and for many. And I'll also insert that uh, Scott Hahn has an argument, I think in his book, The Fourth Cup, 
which describes how only three cups of wine were drank at the Passover meal in the upper room, uh, meaning the Passover itself was extended to the cross where Christ finally drinks the last, quote-unquote, cup of wine when they raise that wine up to him. And uh, that's when he says, it is finished. So that entire event is the Passover. Okay, next section. Manna from heaven. Numbers tells us, whenever the cloud lifted from over the tent, the Israelites would set out, and in the place where the cloud settled down, there the Israelites would camp. Numbers 9-7. And Exodus reads, The Lord spoke to Moses and said, I have heard the complaining of the Israelites. Say to them at twilight, you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall have your fill of bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quails came up and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the layer of dew lifted, there on the surface of the wilderness was a fine flaky substance, as fine as frost on the ground. And when the Israelites saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. There is a parallel between the Passover sacrifice that is sacrificed at twilight, the Last Supper that began at twilight, and finally, the meat that God gave from heaven, here in in, uh, this passage of Exodus, also at twilight. And notice that in the same breath, God tells us he will send them flesh from heaven. He also tells them to expect bread from heaven. In this way, the Eucharist is prefigured. Both bread and flesh are sent from heaven to feed his people prior to entering the promised land, which for us is heaven. The first voice verse points out that they followed a cloud by day and camped next to the cloud at night. The dew would condense and form manna. Some scholars have suggested the condensation that became manna came from the giant cloud next to them, which they were camping next to. In this case, the presence of God in the cloud literally becomes their bread. It should come as no surprise that when God comes into our camp in the incarnation or tabernacles among us, as uh, as I believe John puts it, it is again as the bread from heaven. Jesus even identifies himself as our new manna. Quote, John 6, 47 through 51. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that you may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever. And the bread that I will give you for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, Exodus thirteen thirty three commanded some manna be placed into the Ark of the Covenant. Like all of the items in the items in the ark, it prefigured Jesus. Christ is prophet, priest, and king. Inside of the ark was suitably placed the rod of Aaron. In Numbers 17, God showed the people that Aaron had priestly authority over the other tribes by making his rod the only one to blossom. Christ is foreshadowed as the rod of authority brought from death to life. The tablets of stone represent the prophetic office of Christ. There was no more definitive message sent to man from God than the tablets of stone given to Moses. Christ coming into the world is foreshadowed by the tablets, but Jesus is an even clearer revelation of God's will. Like the tablets, Jesus is smashed and broken. However, like the tablets, he too is restored. 
whole and entire. And finally, the manna represents the kingly role of Christ, who feeds and provides for his people. Now take note, the parallels in this case are not just Jesus and Aaron, nor Jesus and Moses. It said, Jesus is foreshadowed by the rod of resurrection because he will literally be resurrected. The tablets of the law given by God because he is literally the divine word smashed and rejected. And the manna because he is literally the bread from heaven. As he clearly said in John 6, being the new manna, it comes as no surprise that God's people are ungrateful and despite the enormous miracle done on their behalf, unimpressed. In the Lord's Prayer, we are taught to, uh, taught to pray and give us this day our daily bread. The reason for the translation daily is long and complicated. Literal word is, oh goodness, I can't pronounce this, epionisius, or something like that. And it appears nowhere else in the New Testament. The Dulé Rims Bible follows Jerome's translation and reads, Give us this day our super substantial bread. Matthew 6.11 Early church fathers taught that this is our prayer, that this prayer for the super substantial bread is for the Eucharist. Yet we can see this daily bread harkens all the way back to the manna. Exodus 16 makes clear the manna was to be gathered daily, except on the Sabbath, so they could rest. Instead, they collected it twice as much the day before for the Sabbath. Now, often the objection is raised that the Eucharist can't be God simply because what is seen appears to be bread and wine. However, this is not the first time God appears in a physical way for our sake. If Moses were standing at the burning bush and asked to point to God, where do you think he would point? If the Hebrew people, guided by the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, were asked to point to God, where do you think they would point? In both cases, God made himself present to them in these forms. Does this mean God is a bush or that God is a pillar of cloud and fire? Of course not. In each of those cases, there was no incarnation. But in each of those cases, it pointed to a future incarnation. These were powerful symbols of his presence, where he was present in an intensified way, but not in an incarnational way. In each case of God coming to his people, he steps a bit closer to the incarnation. Next, the meal at Mount Sinai. It is hard to overstate how momentous this occasion was for God's people. Nothing this important happened until the incarnation of Christ. Here, the representatives of the people of Israel came and saw God. Now, what were they doing with him? Any guesses? Quote, then Moses and Aaron and Nabab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel under his feet. There was something like a pavement, like a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. God did not lay his hand on the chief men of the pe- God did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. Also, they beheld God, and they ate and drank. So when God ratified the old covenant at Mount Sinai with his people, he did it in the context of a shared meal. When the new covenant in Christ's blood is formed later in salvation history, it is again in the context of a shared meal at the Last Supper. Next one. This is one of my favorites, actually. It's short, but I think it's punchy. Most people don't point this parallel out. Gideon. Gideon is well known for the story of the clay pots and the torches and for choosing his fighting men by how they drank water. However, plenty of other eventful things happened to this fellow, and not the least of these is meeting God. Quote, 
So Gideon went into his house and prepared a kid and unleavened cakes with an ephod of flour. Um, the meat he put into a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them out under the oak and presented them. The angel of God said to them, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that it was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Help me, Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to them, said to him, Peace to you, do not fear, you shall not die. Judges six nineteen through twenty three. Normally fire coming down to consume the sacrifice only occurs at the temple. Here, Gideon sees God face to face during the sacrifice. This reminds me of the road to Emmaus and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. In both cases, they had been talking to God, but only in the flesh bread sacrifice are their eyes opened and they understand God is present with them in the sacrifice. Now, just a chapter later, before a huge battle, Gideon is encouraged by overhearing a conversation. Verse 13. When Gideon arrived, there was a man telling a dream to his comrade. He said, I had a dream. And in it, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell. It turns upside down and the tent collapsed. And his comrade answered, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, a man of Israel. Into his hand, God has given Midian and all the army. Then Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, and he worshiped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, get up. For the Lord has given the army of Midian into your hand. Like almost every other prophecy in the Old Testament, this is a double fulfillment in Christ. Gideon is a type of Christ, and his victory prefigures Christ's victory over the enemies of Satan, sin, and death. In this dream, bread is seen. But what is the bread? Its true identity is understood through interpretation to be a person. Now, in Joseph's earlier dream, wheat is seen, but through the interpretation, it is understood to be a person. All of this prefigures Christ, in whom the dreams are fulfilled and the bread of heaven is seen. The interpretation of what our eyes see as wheat or bread is the same. It is a person, Jesus Christ. When we, like Gideon, know the interpretation, we do like he did. We worship. Next, the bread of the presence and the table of showbread. And as you guys will notice, we have not got out of the Old Testament. There are many times, especially at the beginning, where I then flash over to the New Testament, but we're still following the salvation story, and we are in, we just came out of Judges, all right? Okay, the showbread literally means bread of the face. Well, whose face? Well, the face of God. Three times a year, it would be held up in the sight of the Jewish people, and the priest would proclaim, Behold how God loves you. Elsewhere, it is called the bread of the presence. <clears throat> Who? Whose presence? Well, God's, of course. In the Mass, the Eucharist is held up. Christ is the fulfillment of the table of showbread, and he is the perfect image of God's love for us, held up on the cross as our sacrificial victim, and then in the Eucharist as our sacrificial meal. The showbread was just a glimmer of how the true showbread would in fact be God's presence in a way that we can be with him face to face. 
Catholics and our brothers the Orthodox have always practiced Eucharistic adoration. Adoration from the Latin roots literally means mouth to mouth, but conveys the same meaning as our idiom eye to eye or nose to nose. In Eucharistic adoration, we come face to face with God in the new bread of the face. Christ is specifically referred to as the new David. One of the numerous reasons is David's special role as a priestly king, best exemplified here. Quote, now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. The priest answered David, I have no ordinary bread at hand, but only holy bread, provided that the young men have kept themselves from women. David answered the priest, Indeed, women have been kept from us, as always when I go out on expedition. And the vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is a common journey. How much more today if their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, and there was no bre bread except for the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord, to be taken away and replaced hot each day. Here David prefigures our king, giving out the showbread as his meal, and as we join him in the creation of his new kingdom. Okay, at last we have entered the New Testament, and of course we're going to be uh, doing John 6 next time. Um, I'm going to call this one a day. That was a bunch of reading indeed. Um, okay, on to listener questions. I hope you enjoyed that so far. First question, what is the best engine layout? Ooh, um, all right, off the top of my head, I'm going to say it's got to be either the straight six or the V8. Uh, I have owned four-cylinder, five-cylinder, six-cylinder, and eight-cylinder cars. In fact, I've, if the five-cylinder surprised you because you haven't heard of many of those, I've actually had two different five-cylinder cars, and one was a diesel. Um... And I love five cylinders, and I, I almost want to say that a five cylinder is one of the best engine layouts. It sounds fantastic. Um, sounds kind of like a like a V10, uh, and it should, of course, because it's one bank of the V10. Um, so much so, you know, when Volkswagen made their Jettas and Golfs with a five cylinder, which I not owned, um, they then gave those castings and some of those parts over to Lamborghini. And Lamborghini stuck two of them together and made the V10. So those actually are uh, Volkswagen engines stuck together in some V10 Lamborghinis. And I believe also the Audi R8. Um, so those are super cool. But they're not as smooth as a straight six because the straight six is a naturally balanced engine. If you are looking down a, uh, down a five-cylinder engine and uh, it's running... There's an explosion on one end and then the other end, so it actually rocks. It doesn't have anything to balance itself out like a straight six does, which is naturally balanced. The next naturally balanced configuration is the V8. Now, whenever you split it into a V configuration, now it's not just, well, depending on how you look at it, let's say an XY uh, forces which are going on, but you also get a, a vector for the Z um, because you, you've now split it into the two banks, and so now you anyways. So a V8 is naturally balanced also. So I would say both of those are awesome configurations. I definitely see a rise of the straight six. Um, originally, it was done because we didn't really care that we made the um, car a little bit longer, and uh, most, most cars were, were rear-wheel drive, so uh, that configuration made sense. But with the rise of front-wheel drive, it was more difficult to fit that long of an engine um, 
into the hood if it's uh, longitudinal, if it's, um, um, you know, going uh, not uh, longitudinal, but latitudinal. Oh my goodness, I can't talk. Anyways, um, so they decided to make it a V, so they split it in half. So that's kind of where we got the rise of the V6. However, um, people are really doing a great job making these more and more compact. So you notice um, a lot of new Mercedes and BMWs are going back to the straight six. Um, they're making the cylinder walls a little bit thinner. They're going down to, I think, three liters or so, so that they can carry over components from their two-liter uh, four-cylinder. And uh, they're replacing the torque converter with those 48-volt mild hybrid systems. And I think that's a really good, uh, that's a good way to do it. I know uh, Mazda's coming out with a, a similar design, the, the uh, three-liter, I believe it's going to be. But they're doing gas and diesel, so I'm very excited about that in the new rear-wheel drive Mazda 6. Um, let's see, let's see. Yeah, so I'd say the straight six is actually my favorite. Uh, the V8's up there, um, five cylinders up there. After that, I mean, after that, I, I don't know. I just don't care about any engines below that. Four cylinders, fine, but whatever. All right. <coughs> Ooh, good question indeed. Um, let's see what else we have. We're not going to do too many today because that was a lot of reading, guys. Um... All right, all right. Oh, I have a friend who says that Catholics believe lots of pagan beliefs um, because of, I assume, Constantine and whatnot. All right, yeah, yeah. Here's my general answer to this. Uh, most of the time that this criticism is launched, it's by more traditional or more fundamentalist uh, conservative Protestants who've taken on this idea. And not always, but likely, if you ask them the question, hey, is America a racist country? Do we have all these racist institutions? Because, you know, we used to have slavery back in the day, so aren't we a racist country today? They're probably going to say, no, of course we're not. We fought a civil war. People literally fought and died to end this, this terrible sin of slavery you can talk all you want about 1619 and about how we were a slaving nation, but the slaving nation was called the Confederacy. And guess what? It was defeated. You know what's around now? It's called, it's, it's the Union. We, we did Reconstruction. We set the laws. We are the, we are the country that defeated slavery, not the one that started it. Of course not. And then... Ask them this. Well, do you know that there was a pagan, um, a, a pagan Catholicism, one that sold out to the emperor, one that uh, compromised its belief, one which incorporated these evil practices? I agree, it was there. It was called Arianism. They're the ones who diluted what it meant for Christ to be fully God and fully man. And yeah, they were extraordinarily powerful, politically powerful, militarily powerful. But guess what? We actually fought against them. The Council of Nicaea was the final defeat of Arianism. That's where we get the Nicene Creed. That's where we get the Athanasian Creed was from that time, from Athanasius. Um, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. This is the defeat of Arius, of Arianism. That's like, that's like the final battle of the Civil War when it's finally put to an end. So, yeah, there was paganism in Catholicism. Yes, it was infected with those things. But no, it was defeated. It was defeated definitively in that council. 
and the greatest threat since Gnosticism finally was laid to rest. So what we have today is not Arianism. We have Orthodox Catholicism. That's what survived. You know, the people who, who went on to... Um, People who went on to, to set up the church after that are ones which survived enormous persecution. We too, as the Christian faithful, we died as martyrs during that time um, to keep the faith pure. There are people who, in, who would rather die, and it's recorded many times, than do a pinch of incense to offer to, her, to the emperor. Um, yeah, I mean, if you read St. Augustine... He spends a lot of time dealing with what do we do with the uh, the priests and the bishops which apostatized. And uh, that, that was the big concern after the council is what do we do with the, the not with the weak priests, with the weak bishops who um, who weren't brave enough to actually stand up like like we did. Um, but, you know, instead, uh, instead caved. So that's what Augustine was answering. Um so I'd say this is just kind of a historically illiterate, um, um, you know, critique and that they don't typically um, follow that line of reasoning when they deal with stuff like uh, the United States. Now, not everybody's going to share those same sets of beliefs, but I think that's usually a really good tactic to take. Um, also, you can just ask, cool, what's pagan? And uh, maybe piecemeal answer some of those objections. They might bring up, well, I don't know, Easter comes from the word da 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 da, and then you can tell them that that etymology is just um, has nothing to do with the actual movement of language from one to the next. Instead, it's just based on a cursory similarity. Or they're going to bring up, well, the Easter bunny, and you can look into that. I've actually heard recently that um, there's a there's an old legend that when um, when Mary was going to the tomb, she saw a rabbit dart out. And um, that gave her hope that, you know what, maybe there's new life that's, uh, that's going to come from, from my visiting this tomb. I don't know if that's true. It's probably a pious legend that was created later. Um, but yeah, you could piecemeal dispel some of those things. Um, and then, of course, ask them when this giant apostasy even happened. Find a place in history where we went from this like perfect, pure Christianity to being infused with all of this awful paganism. Go ahead. Go back through the, um, the writings of the fathers and draw the line for me. Because I think that what they'll find if they try to do that digging is that from the very start, all of the distinctive Catholic doctrines were present. At very least, you know, this article about the Eucharist... Um, you know, tell them that, uh, you know, ask them, is the Eucharist a pagan, um, a pagan idea? Um, clearly, clearly is not, I think, as we've spent much time um, reviewing. Well, that was kind of a long answer to that question and began to be a rant. But, um, yeah, I liked liked that one. I think I'll stop it here today. Um yeah, next week we're going to be dealing with the New Testament, starting in John 6 and moving along. Um, yeah, I'm excited to share a lot of that with you. I do have a, a really neat argument, um, which basically, oh, well, I'll try to present it at the end. It came up in dialogue with that fellow I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, where um, somebody who wants to read a symbolic reading of John 6 um, actually has to deny the Trinity or the divinity of Christ. And I'll show you why that is. I'll show you from the text. So we have a section of John 
which reads in a certain way. This is my cliffhanger. I hope this works. I hope it's a good cliffhanger that you're desperately wanting to hear this argument. But um, yeah, I think it, it means that you have to, to pick one side or another based on the uh, nature of the text. A lot of our Protestant brothers and sisters like to argue less from, um, from themes and typology like I've kind of been focusing on and more from, uh, from grammar. So this is a very Protestant grammar, textual kind of argument, and I just love it. All right. Well, thanks for listening. And as always, if you enjoyed this episode, share it with your friends. Um, that is, if you have friends and you like sharing. And if you didn't enjoy this episode, share it with your enemies. Thanks, guys.